Welcome to Night Night Bitch. I'm your host, Molly, your guide to awe-inspiring texts read by me or in the voices of their original creators. Please know I don't own any of this content. It's all freely accessible online and duly cited in my episode descriptions for your reference. This podcast is a creative outlet for me, so I don't update it as regularly. But if you'd like to subscribe to my other podcast, Back From The Borderline, I release two thought-provoking episodes each week. And now, let's dive into the episode. Welcome. It's time to rest your weary mind, unwind, escape the matrix, and explore the arcane. We live in a culture that is rapidly losing its grasp on myth and meaning. Exploration of philosophy, depth psychology, esotericism, the occult, myth, and mysticism have been proven to inspire awe. Such experiences of daily awe have been shown to be psychologically beneficial and aid in the potential expansion of consciousness. Each time we're here together, I'll select a reading, article, or sample audio that could increase your opportunity for such experiences. While you listen, you might fall asleep. You might wake up. You might do both. Maybe finding the perfect balance between awake and dreaming is exactly what you always needed. Night night bitch. This is the exercise for your own development process designed by you. You should be hearing my voice in your right ear. Remember the purpose, your purpose for this exercise. And begin your pre-preparation process now. The affirmation beginning, I am more than my physical body. searching, one of the authors, esotericists, and mystics who has influenced my own spiritual unfolding most profoundly is Manly Palmer Hall, more commonly known as Manly P. Hall. Manly Palmer Hall was born in 1901 and passed away in 1990. He was a Canadian author, lecturer, astrologer, mystic, 
and Freemason. Over his 70-year career, he gave thousands of lectures and published over 150 volumes, of which the best known is a book called The Secret Teachings of All Ages, published in 1928. In 1934, he founded the Philosophical Research Society in Los Angeles. Manley P. Hall was born in 1901 in Ontario, Canada to Louise Palmer Hall, a chiropractor and member of the Rosicrucian Fellowship, and to William S. Hall, a dentist. Hall is said to have never have known his father. In 1919, he moved to Los Angeles to reunite with his birth mother, who was living in Santa Monica. After moving in with her, he very soon after became drawn to mysticism, esoteric philosophies, and their underlying principles. In 1919, Hall took over as preacher of the Church of the People, located at Trinity Auditorium in downtown Los Angeles. Less than a year later, Hall booked his very first lecture on the topic of reincarnation. He was ordained a minister in the Church of the People in 1923, and only a few days after his ordination, he was elected permanent pastor of the church. His publications consisted of two small pamphlets, the first of which was titled The Breastplate of the High Priest and Wands and Serpents. Between 1922 and 1923, he wrote three books, The Initiates of the Flame, The Ways of the Lonely Ones, and The Lost Keys of Freemasonry. During the early 1920s, Caroline Lloyd and her daughter Estelle, members of a family who controlled an oil field in Ventura County, California, began sending a large portion of their income to Hall. And with these funds, Hall traveled throughout Europe and Asia to study the lives, customs, and religions of the people in those regions. While visiting London in the early 1930s, Hall acquired from an auction agent at Sotheby's a substantial collection of rare books and manuscripts about alchemy and esotericism. Owing to economic conditions resulting from the Great Depression, he acquired the collection for a much lower price than normal. By 1928, Hall had become sufficiently known and respected as an interpreter and lecturer of many ancient writings. After his book, The Secret Teachings of All Ages, began circulating, Hall became increasingly influential on the metaphysical movement sweeping the United States. His book challenged assumptions about society's spiritual roots, making readers view their spirituality in new and diverse ways. He subtitled his book to the proposition that concealed within the emblematic figures, allegories, and rituals of the ancients is a secret doctrine concerning the inner mysteries of life, which doctrine has been preserved in toto among a small band of initiated minds. As one writer put it, the result was a gorgeous, dreamlike book of mysterious symbols, concise essays, and colorful renderings of the mythical beasts riding out of the sea, 
and angelic beings with lion's heads presiding over somber initiation rites and torchlit temples of ancestral civilizations that had mastered latent powers beyond the reach of modern man. In 1988, Hall wrote, The greatest knowledge of all time should be available to the 20th century not only in one shilling editions of the Bone Library in small type and shabby binding, but in a book that would be a monument, not merely a coffin. I discovered a full copy of one of Manly P. Hall's books titled The Wisdom of the Knowing Ones, Gnosticism, the Key to Esoteric Christianity. And in this series, we are going to be reading the entire book together. It is my hope that something within these writings awakens something in you, like it did for me. You can absorb it at your own pace, feel into the words, and find if anything feels true to you in my own spiritual search. I've found that when I hear something that feels like truth, you perceive it as an inner knowing. Something just clicks. You recognize that you have landed on something that just feels true. And I ask that you listen to this book with an open mind and see if you can identify any of those felt truths for yourself. The description of the book is as follows. Manly P. Hall's Wisdom of the Knowing Ones examines the relationship of Gnostic mysticism to the inner teachings of Plato, Valentinus, Basildon, and its spiritual flowering in ancient Alexandria. If any group which shared in the Christian mystery possessed the esoteric secrets of the early church, it was the Gnostics, preserving to the end the highest ethical and rational standards. The early Christian church attacked Gnosticism vigorously and relentlessly, recognizing these mystical philosophers as being the most formidable adversaries to the temporal power of Christian theology. Now, in previous episodes of Night Night Bitch, we have explored some of the Gnostic Gospels. We've explored the Essenes and the Cathars. What I've learned through my studies is that there are inner teachings of all major religions. There are the exoteric teachings, which are the ones that are known by most of the religion's followers. And then there are the esoteric teachings the ones that are reserved for the initiates, the inner circle. And esotericists like Manly P. Hall believed that we all deserved to know and were ready to know the inner teachings. It's no secret that many sects of Christianity have become more focused on power, money, and corruption than the true teachings of their savior. Jesus Christ. And this book will open your mind to the true esoteric inner teachings of Christianity 
that the church has so desperately tried to hide from the public. But now, your eyes and ears will be opened to the true esoteric teachings of Christianity. So without further ado, let's dive into the text. The book begins with an introduction titled, What Do the Knowers Know? In December 1945, an Egyptian Arab countryman made a momentous archaeological discovery in Upper Egypt. No one knows precisely where the man Muhammad Ali made his discovery. It appears that he had several reasons for concealing the location of his find. Today, it's generally agreed that the discovery was made somewhere in the vicinity of the present town of Nag Hammadi, near which was located in early Christian times the first and largest of all Christian monastic communities, the compound of Chenoboskian, founded by the sainted Coptic monk Pachomius. Muhammad Ali's discovery consisted of a large red earthenware jar containing 13 papyrus books bound in leather. Legend has it that when the jar was broken by the discoverer's mattock, a cloud of golden dust rose into the air and disappeared from sight, as if a long, confined presence had at last found its way into the light of day. This incident of possible synchronistic importance signaled the arrival of an era of unprecedented interest in a particular early variety of Christianity known as Gnosticism. The discovery of the Nag Hammadi Library as the collection of Gnostic treaties has become known was followed less than a year later by the unearthing of the Dead Sea Scrolls at Kirbad Qumran in the Holy Land. As the years and decades rolled on, it became increasingly evident that these two archaeological finds were in some way related. One concerned the teachings of the early Christian schools of Gnostics, while the other contained the writings of heterodox Jewish mystics of a slightly earlier period, who seemed to have a good deal in common with their Gnostic Christian descendants. The existence of a secret or semi-secret tradition of esoteric religiosity within the Semitic spiritual matrix thus emerged as a very real possibility. It's well known that some esotericists in our culture have long believed in the existence of such a secret tradition. Groups and individuals such as the Cathars, Rosicrucians, Knights Templar, esoteric Freemasons, and Theosophists often considered themselves as functioning within a tradition that could be traced back to the initiates of the Gnostics and the Essenes, as well as to the Neoplatonists and the votaries of the Egyptian Hermes. 
The late Manly P. Hall, for instance, wrote prolifically and insightfully about this adept tradition in his volumes about the Orders of the Quest, Orders of Universal Reformation, Orders of the Great Work, and others. While many believed in such a tradition, few could point to the precise sources and documentary evidence concerning these esoteric currents, especially when it came to the teachings and practices of the Gnostics. For over a millennium and a half, the only information available concerning the Gnostics was to be found in the writings of certain church fathers who wrote polemical treaties against the Gnostics. To gather accurate information from such sources was highly unlikely. These writers, or heresiologists, were the very folk who relentlessly attacked and ultimately incited the repression of the Gnostics. They assailed, ridiculed, and greatly distorted the message of the Gnostic teachers making them appear as fools and knaves of an invariably reprehensible kind. In the late 18th and early 19th centuries and thereafter, a small number of original documents of Gnostic provenance appeared in Europe, having been brought there by travelers from the Middle East. By the end of the 19th century, the few now available Gnostic documents impelled many scholars to abandon reliance on the biased heresiological sources, which were considered normative earlier. Books, such as those by the German scholars von Hanek, Richard Reitzenstein, and Walter Bauer, and their English and French colleagues brought about a change in Gnostic studies. Neither were the members of esoteric orders and societies idle at this time. Madame Blavatsky and her brilliant pupil, G.R.S. Mead, did much to simulate the enthusiastic interest in the Gnostics, while French esotericists, led by Papus, Gerard, and Kaus, and Jules Dionel, went so far as reconstituting the Gnostic Church, which in several variants continues to the present day. However, none of the aforementioned could rival the coming of the Nag Hammadi Library and its aftermath. The new epoch of research sparked by this wealth of documents came to extend gradually far behind the halls of academia. At the turn of the 20th to the 21st century, we find novels, works of popular scholarship, science fiction, magazine articles, and web pages on the internet in considerable profusion proliferating in the public arena, engendering further interest in Gnosticism. It is high time, therefore, that we all inquire into the substance of the teachings and practices of the Gnostics. That is the end of the introduction, and before we dive into the text, I'm adding a quick sidebar. The codices that were discovered by Muhammad Ali, these documents were discovered only as recently as 1945. 
This means that as of now, the time of recording here in 2023, it's only been 78 years since we have discovered these documents. It's important to remember that when these documents were discovered, we did not have the internet. So teachers like Manly P. Hall had to spread this knowledge by word of mouth, lectures, and by the publication of books, which most people never really ended up discovering. The age of the internet has meant that so many more people have access to these teachings. In 1995, only 16 million people had access to the internet. By 2000, there were around 300 million. By 2005, there were more than a billion. And today, in 2023, there are some 3.4 billion users of the internet across the world. So if we think about it like this, since 2005, which we might just go ahead and say that that is when most people had access to the internet, it's only been 17 years that much of this information is widely available. As crazy and uncertain as times are now, as dark as we feel that things can get, one thing that keeps me going personally is the feeling of being so blessed that we are able to have this information that you're about to be listening to right now, something that you're able to hear. For so long, the Catholic Church and other major religious institutions have tried to suppress this information from being available to the general public, but now here you are able to listen to it in podcast form. The age of Aquarius is the age that we are entering now, and many believe that this is an age where the truth will be set free. And I believe that the truth is set free through these types of resources being readily available. So let's dive in to the very first chapter of the book which is titled, The Knowers and Their Knowledge. Until comparatively recently, few people were familiar with the word Gnostic. A rather larger number was acquainted with its antonym, Agnostic. Both are derived from the Greek Gnosis, usually translated as knowledge. An agnostic is thus a non-knower, i.e., one who denies all knowledge of ultimate realities, while a Gnostic is one who professes knowledge of such things. One needs to keep in mind, however, that Gnosis is not primarily rational knowledge. It has little to do with philosophical reasoning, and even less it is associated with such matters as our contemporary computer-related obsession with access to data. Elaine Pagels, author of the splendid work The Gnostic Gospels, translates the term gnosis as used by the Gnostics as insight, a term denoting both psychological and metaphysical cognition arrived at intuitively. Contemporary scholarship holds 
that what we call Gnosticism was a diverse movement showing many complex characteristics, yet it is quite evident that this wealth of diversity in myth, teaching, and perhaps in practice possesses an undeniable central core. While there may have been numerous Gnostic teachers and schools, this does not mitigate against the fact that there was one Gnosticism. What united various Gnostic orientations was more important than what divided them. It's also important to keep in mind that one of the uniting factors was a common dedication to the founder of the Christian tradition, Jesus Christ. For the sake of clarity, it's useful to confine the term Gnostic to the kind of person we see in the Nag Hammadi writings, a Christian, albeit of a singularly creative and heterodox kind, especially when compared with Christians of so-called mainstream orthodoxy. It's true that the term Gnosis and much of the basic Gnostic view of reality were shared by people who were not Christians, but these pagan Gnostics should properly be called Hermeticists, for they employed the figure of the Greco-Egyptian Hermes as their savior, very much like the Christian Gnostics were to do with Jesus. It's also legitimate to speak of something that Gershom Sholem has tentatively described as Jewish Gnosticism, but the accurate name for its earlier development may be Essene and Merkabah mysticism, and for its later manifestation, one may properly use the term Kabbalah. An important question that is in need of an answer is, how did the Gnostics come by their unique and unusual worldview? In the past, it was customary to seek the origins of Gnosticism in objective external influences and transmissions. The contemporary view is rather different from this. The British scholar E.R. Dodds has suggested as long as 40 years ago that the writings of the Gnostics derived from mystical experience. The great psychologist Carl Jung has made the same suggestion, and following his lead, the Dutch scholar Gilles Quispel proposed that Gnosticism originated in the experience of the ontological self a process that might appear both psychological and mystical. This experience, wrote Quispel, does not lend itself to prosaic or dogmatic description and definition. Rather, it may be projected outward in the form of mystically inspired religious mythology. It's without doubt that the majority of the Gnostic writings bear the character of such inspired mythology. In the wake of the work of several great scholars of mythology in our day, people have come to view myths in a much more positive light than had been the case earlier. Once, it was generally believed that a myth is not but an untrue story. Today, many feel that myths communicate truths which cannot be adequately conveyed in any other fashion. It's also worthy of note that one of the greatest mythologies of recent decades, 
Carl Carignier, specifically pinpointed the myths of the Gnostics as originating in mystical experience, a circumstance that distinguishes them from such derivative myths as those of Homer. Today, there can be little doubt about the likelihood of the great Gnostic teachers having been inspired mystics who experienced realities not accessible to mortals under ordinary circumstances. Valentinus, Basilides, Bardason, and their followers were much more than idle speculators, as the heresiologist church fathers claimed. While Gnosticism thus may be said to originate in mystical experience, this does not mean that all mystical experiences results in Gnosticism. There are certain similarities, to be sure, between the recognitions of a Saint John of the Cross or a Saint Teresa of Avila and the mysticism of Valentinus, but the former share an orthodox Roman Catholic worldview, albeit one which dogmatists are often uncomfortable, while the latter is Gnostic in his outlook. It seems that Gnosticism expresses a specific religious mystical experience which then finds expression in teachings, most often embodied in mythology. All Gnostic teachings and mythologems are indicative of insights of great metaphysical and psychological subtlety. They're never to be understood in simple declarative terms and less even so in dogmatic terms. In the following summary, we will encapsulate in inadequate prose what the Gnostic myths express in their intuitive and imaginative style. Together, these recognitions add up to what B may call the Gnostic worldview. Concerning the Cosmos the imperfection of the world are an issue that practically all traditions have addressed. Where the traditions differ is in that they suggest what might be done about it. Orthodox Christians are agreed that we live in a fallen world, which we shall leave behind at our death. Modern secularists have professed a dedication to what they were pleased to regard as the improvement of the world and in doing so, they precipitated frightful world wars, holocausts, and revolutions. Gnostics, on the other hand, had their own, perhaps quite startling, view of these matters. They held that the world is flawed because it was created in a flawed manner. They also held that the only substantial and effective way to improve the world is one that leads to the improvement of human consciousness through the insight of Gnosis. The Gnostic worldview is sometimes characterized as anti-cosmic, but in reality it's merely critical of the cosmos because of its numerous flaws. Like Buddhists, Gnostics came to the realization that earthly life is filled with suffering. Some of this suffering is undoubtedly of our own doing, 
but certainly most of it originates in the natural or cosmic order itself. Why do virtually all creatures sustain themselves by eating each other? Why are living beings destroyed by natural catastrophes? Why do humans, in addition to all other difficulties, also suffer depression, alienation, and boredom? Because the causes of these and other conditions are inherent in the fabric of the world, so said the Gnostics. Concerning God The Gnostic concept of deity is more subtle than that of most religions. Modern minds are often puzzled by the Gnostic concept of God, but a thoughtful evaluation of this concept discloses that it's neither unreasonable nor improbable. To properly appreciate the Gnostic view of deity, one must remember that the Gnostics originated within the Semitic, monotheistic religious matrix. Unlike members of such schools of pagan gnosis as Hermeticism or Neoplatonism, the Gnostics were confronted with the image of the monotheistic god of the Old Testament and with the adaptations of this image in the New Testament. They faced a god who not only created the universe, but micromanaged it as its lawgiver, policeman, judge, and executioner, and who moreover performed these tasks in a capricious, often wrathful, and illogical manner. The greatest of all questions the Gnostics asked was this, is this flawed creator truly the ultimate, true, and good God? Or might he be a lesser deity, a sort of large but not very wise angel who has become either ignorant of a greater power beyond himself or is an imposter? impersonating the universal God. The Gnostics answered these questions by saying that this creator is obviously not the ultimate true God, but rather a demiurgos, or craftsman, an intermediate, secondary deity. Above and beyond this intermediate deity, there is a true, ultimate, real, and good reality which or who can be effectively addressed and experienced by the human spirit. Today, a large number of people either don't believe in any god at all, or they've managed to so whitewash the image of the monotheistic god that they feel no need to engage in the distinctions which occupied the minds of the Gnostics. Still, judged on its own merits, the issue of the dichotomy of the lesser and greater God may still be considered as worthy of our attention. The abundance of the now available Gnostic texts makes one thing very clear. The Gnostics had a unique and insightful view of the human being. Existentialist philosophy, Jungian and transpersonal psychology, as well as such Eastern religious traditions as Hinduism and Buddhism, 
all show various degrees of affinity to Gnosticism, particularly when it comes to the Gnostic teachings concerning the human being. The Gnostics held that human nature mirrors the duality found in the world. In part, it was made by the false creator and in part consists of the light of the true God. Within the human dwells a divine spark, a spirit that's older than the created world and all in it. Much of the time, we are ignorant of the divine spark resident within us. To awaken to the recognition of this presence involves overcoming powerful obstacles which seem to be built into our own nature and into the environment within which we exist. Gnostic wisdom has often alluded to the possibility that these obstacles may in some ways be connected with the powers that manage certain aspects of the universe and whose dominion over us might be threatened by our gnosis. The Apostle Paul, whom Elaine Pagels justly called the Gnostic Paul, may have referred to this circumstance when he wrote that we struggle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual wickedness in high places. Death releases the divine spark from its lowly prison, but such release may only be temporary unless liberating knowledge has come to the human while still on earth. Men and women are divided into three categories that resemble modern psychological types. A small number are spiritual, pneumatics, who are ready for gnosis and liberation. On the opposite end of the psycho-spiritual scale, we find those who are earthbound and materialistic, hyletics, and who recognize only physical reality. Between these two poles, as it were, we find those who live largely in their mental-emotional nature, psychics. Such people expect rules of conduct to redeem them instead of aspiring to higher, selvic states of consciousness. In many cases, one may note a certain development that people undergo and that moves from materialistic slavery to the senses by way of ethical religiosity to spiritual freedom brought by liberating gnosis. As the noted scholar of Gnosticism, Gile Quispel wrote, The world spirit in exile must go through the inferno of matter and the purgatory of morals to arrive at the spiritual paradise. The Gnostics held that the essential nature of the human is divine. Mainstream orthodoxy, then as now, believes that the soul of the human is a creation, forever different in nature from the deity. Not unlike Hinduism and Buddhism who recognize a transcendental Buddha nature or Atman, respectively, in the human, Gnosticism looks upon men and women as gods and goddesses who have forgotten who they are. Humans are caught in a predicament wherein the limitations imposed by physical existence are combined with a triple ignorance. Ignorance of our origins, 
of our true nature and of our ultimate destiny. It is from this predicament that the Gnostics aspires to be freed by Gnosis. Salvation through knowledge. An early Gnostic statement defines the nature of Gnosis in the following manner. What makes us free is the Gnosis of who we are, of what we have become, of where we were, of wherein we have been cast, of where to we are going, of what we are being freed, of what birth really is, and of what rebirth really is. The person who intuitively receives accurate answers to these questions is receiving liberating gnosis. Inasmuch as it is ignorance that keeps us enslaved, it is obvious that the kind of knowledge which removes ignorance brings about our liberation. It is as if we were enmeshed in a great malefic cocoon, and with the coming of such knowledge the cocoon began to unravel until at last we could stand again in the sunlight of the true God, freed from our binding fetters. It might be assumed by some that this liberating gnosis can be achieved by the individual without any outside aid. Such, however, was not the understanding of the Gnostics. To be liberated from our predicament and suffering, we require help, although we certainly must contribute our own efforts. Orthodox Christians believe that Jesus incarnated in order to save them by his suffering and death. Gnostics always held that Jesus came into this world as their helper so that with his aid they might attain to liberating Gnosis. Neither did Gnostics hold that Jesus was the only such salvic helper to appear in the long course of human history. From the earliest times, messengers of the light have come forth from the true God in order to assist humans in their quest for such salvic knowledge. Some of the messianic figures of this sort mentioned in Gnostic scriptures are Seth, the third son of Adam, Jesus, and in the later Gnostic movement, the Iranian prophet Mani. Gnostics never look to salvation from sin, original or other, but rather they desired release from unconsciousness and incomprehension whereby they meant primarily ignorance of spiritual realities. Salvation or liberation is a potential present in every man and woman, and it's not vicarious but individual. The great messengers of the light come to stimulate this potential and they do not do so by their death, but by their lives. The ministry of these messengers is twofold. First, they bring us teachings which lead our minds and hearts to gnosis. And second, they confer liberating mysteries 
which their mystic grace brings the fullness of liberating gnosis, which is thus sealed in our spirits forever. The nature of Gnostic liberating mysteries has been a matter of conjecture for a very long time. Many scholars of the last two centuries were unfavorably disposed toward both myth and sacrament. Frequently, they relegated the mythic and sacramental aspect of Gnosticism to either some sort of early immature developments, which were designed to mature into philosophy, or on the other hand, they regarded them as phenomena indicating decadence. The latest research has proven all of these contentions wrong. Myth and sacrament were not incidental byproducts of Gnostic spirituality, but were its heart and essence. The Gospel of Philip of the Nakamadi collection presents us with an entire volume of Gnostic sacramental theology. In other indications of sacramental gnosis are ubiquitous in the currently available documents. Gnosticism is thus revealed as a tradition, possessing its own myths and its own sacramental mysteries its own priesthood and spiritual lineage leading back to the great Gnostic teachers of old. Those who expect a totally individualistic, spontaneous spirituality unmediated by tradition and formal content in Gnosticism will be disappointed. Today, we are experiencing what might be called a modest Gnostic Renaissance. The possibility exists that the Gnostic Renaissance at the end of the 20th and at the beginning of the 21st centuries may be in some ways representing a parallel to the hermetic humanistic Renaissance of the 15th and 16th centuries. As the then newly rediscovered hermetic literature fueled the great cultural rebirth of that historical epoch, so, the similar rediscovery of the Gnostic scriptures in our period may lead to similar results. The stone that the builders rejected may become the cornerstone once more. What the blindness of churchly politics rejected nearly 2,000 years ago may find its way into the spirituality of the new century. A new millennium. Be that as it may, books that bring us closer to the wisdom of the Gnostics ought to be welcomed when such a book comes to us from the pen of one of the wise men of this age, Manly P. Hall. It is to be welcomed with particular joy. The following book authored by the late Manly P. Hall consists of several interrelated essays concerning the Gnostics. As indicated by the subtitle of his work, our author regarded Gnosticism as the key to esoteric Christianity. For this insight alone, we ought to congratulate him most profusely. Indeed, there can be no esoteric Christianity without Gnosticism. For in a very real sense, the wisdom of the knowing ones is the original esoteric Christianity itself. Take away the contribution of the Gnostics, 
and all the non-mainstream spiritual scriptures of alternative mystical Christianity fall like a house of cards. Anyone calling himself an esoteric Christian who disregards the Gnostics remains ignorant of the best and greatest resource of the alternative approach to the inner core of the Christian faith. Today, we know that Gnosticism is very much alive. In Iraq and Iran, there lives a substantial religious minority known as the Mandaeans, who are ancient Semitic Gnostics who have survived into today's time. Also, much information has come to light in recent years concerning the great and noble religion of the Cathars, or Albigensians, who practiced their explicitly Gnostic religion openly during the Middle Ages in Europe, though they were cruelly exterminated by the minions of the particularly unenlightened Catholicism of their day. Some of these Gnostics also survived and have continued their religious life. In many ways and forms, Gnostics walk in the light of day again. The writer of this introduction wishes to facilitate the Philosophical Research Society and its president, Dr. Obadiah Harris, for deciding to publish this work. This introduction was certainly also intended to serve as a tribute to the late Manly P. Hall, whose memory continues to live for all of us who have known him or have studied his work. Stephen A. Holler. We've now made it through the first 22 pages of this book, which comprised simply the introduction. I wanted to lay the foundation for us to introduce you to who Manley P. Hall was, why his work matters, and also put it into context of how blessed and incredible it is that we have this information available to us, which was only discovered as recently as the 1940s and widely distributed only as recently over the last 17 years. The fact that you are hearing this now is truly incredible, and I hope you can let that sink in. This will be a multi-episode series where we will go through this entire book. I want to make this information available to as many people as possible in honor of the Cathars, the Albigensians, the Gnostics, and to writers like Manly P. Hall who worked their entire lives to make sure that this information could get into the hands and eyes and ears of as many people as possible. And if you are open to it, it will transform your life. Most importantly, your inner life. On the next episode, we will dive into chapter one, which is titled Gnosticism, the key to esoteric Christianity. I look forward to welcoming you back so that we can continue our journey. Thank you for venturing into the unknown with me. Full details about the selected text are available in the episode description. Selected readings are for the purpose of research and study, entertainment, and discussion. The views and opinions expressed in the included readings belong to the original authors and creators and may not necessarily reflect my own. 
The episode description also contains links that will allow you to join the community on social and support the continued production of this podcast. Don't forget to follow the show on your favorite podcast player so you're alerted when new episodes are released. In a wonderland they lie, dreaming as the days go by, dreaming as the summers die, ever drifting down the stream, lingering in the golden gleam, life What is it but a dream? Night, night, bitch.